Welcome to the OKC Community Podcast. We are so glad you're here. To get the latest updates or to watch this week's message, visit our website at okccommunitychurch.com. Hi, everyone. Oh, it's so good to be back. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. No matter if you've been uh, like me and gone for a month or even been gone for a week, it's good to be here. Would you agree? Look at your neighbor and say, it's good. Now say, to be here. Now look at your other neighbor, your second choice, and say, it's good to be here. Oh, I love it. I'm so good. Uh, I'm so happy to be here. I do want to say before, you know, we jump into today's scripture, I do want to just say, I need to say thanks really quick. I just want to say thank you. Heartfelt thanks. Uh, many of you wrote notes to, to us before we started our sabbatical. You might not remember that all the way back in May, uh, but Ashley Langford organized them in such a this really cool way where we had four a day for every day we were gone. And it was so encouraging. So many of you shared not just kindness, but your story of how this church has impacted your life and moved us, so deeply impacted us to tears many days. And I just want to thank you for doing that. It was such a gift. And I'd love to share stories about all the things that uh, God has done over the last month. But I want to stay true to what today is. Today is a dime in which we get to come together as this church, open God's word and say, Lord, we want to hear what you have for us. And so we're going to get into the message and all that kind of good stuff. But first, I also want to acknowledge this. In a room like this, every Sunday when people gather, like I've become acutely aware, like I've always known this, but I just always am growing in my sensitivity to the, the amount of need that rep is represented in a room like this. That there are people in here that walk in and, and you have, maybe, maybe you're hurting for whatever reason, maybe you're feeling lonely, maybe you're feeling uh, depression, maybe you're feeling angst about something, maybe you're frustrated about life, maybe there's something going on that's just got you worried uh, to death, maybe it's a money thing, maybe it's a job thing. And so what I'm, I'm really wanting to do is I want to begin with just a word of prayer over us. And, and, and perhaps today you're in a place where you're like, I'm here because I know I, I, I want to be, uh, I want to be at church today, but, but I have to acknowledge like there's something going on in my life that I just like, I need God to actually do something in my life right now. I need him to meet me in a special way. And I know some of us even need a miracle right now. And, and so I just want to pray. Is that a good way to begin today? So if you just bow your heads, we're just going to go to the Lord in prayer. We're going to invite the Holy Spirit in a way that just says he's going to draw near to those who ask him to come. In fact, with heads bowed, just if you're here and you're like, I actually... I already know I just need the Lord today in a way to just meet me where I'm at. I, it, prayer actually is a really good way to, to start this message. If you just acknowledge before, before the Lord by just lifting your hand and saying, today, yeah, that's where I'm at. I need, I, need, I need the Lord to draw near to me today. I need him to speak. Just lift your hand. It's an acknowledgement to say, Lord, I'm here. And I believe that you have a purpose for me being here. It's good. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come. Come in a way today that is, uh, that is personal, that is felt, that is, that is not conjured up by emotion or, or by human tactic, but it is all just your presence and the power of God at work in our lives. And so I pray for each and every person that raised their hand, for those that even 
maybe felt in their heart they should have raised their hand, but they didn't. That, that Father, you want to meet us in our need. I pray for those hurting, frustrated, angry, um, confused right now. I pray for those who are just worried. Pray for those who are physically in pain right now. I pray for those who feel lost and confused and, and frustrated. But, but Lord, uh, we know that there's all of us that are, we're all over the spectrum today. And Lord, we just invite your presence into our life. We invite you to move in a way that is, that is real and honest and true. And Father, with that, we know that we have to humble ourselves before you today. So Lord, we humble ourselves and we ask you to do what only you can do to change the human heart, to change a person's life. That's the presence of not only your spirit, but the power of Jesus in our life. Jesus, would you be made real to every person today? We ask this in your holy name. And everybody said, amen, amen. All right, my friends, are you ready to get into week number six of the parables? If you have a Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 10. You know, our tagline in this series is whoever has ears, let them hear, right? Whoever has ears, let them hear. What a great line. We didn't come up with it, though. Jesus said it, right? Jesus is like, hey, I gave you ears. It'd be a good idea if you use them. And, and listen, like, have you ever grown frustrated with someone when you think they aren't hearing you? You're like, they are not listening to me. And so you're talking to them, and you finally have that breaking point moment when you're like, listen to me. You are not hearing me. And at that point, what do they say? They say, excuse me, what? Did you say something? And you're like, okay, okay, yeah, that's what I thought, right? Well, you may remember Jesus said this line, whoever has ears, let them hear, in a conversation with his disciples when he was literally telling them about why he spoke in parables. And he said, listen, I speak in parables so that people will understand the truth of the kingdom. He said, and he actually said, those who don't want to know the truth, those who aren't interested in me, I'm gonna share these parables and they're not even gonna understand them. But those who want to know me, those who want to hear the truths of the kingdom of God, these parables will reveal the truth. He said, blessed are their eyes, those who hear, and blessed are their ears because they hear the truth of the kingdom. So, so this, this is all predicated by this idea that Jesus wants to use parables as a vehicle to deliver truths of God's kingdom to people who are willing to hear. And so perhaps the prayer right off the bat today is this. Jesus, I'm listening. I want to hear you today. I mean, that truly is the prayer for all of us, right? I mean, you might even want to whisper it right now. Jesus, I'm listening. In fact, just, just do that. You can do it on your own if, you, if you're ready. Jesus, I'm listening. Jesus, I'm listening. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So Luke chapter 10. Here we find what I believe is one of the most important parables that Jesus ever shared. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And when I say one of the most important, I, I mean that this particular parable is positioned at a really critical moment in the ministry of Jesus. And I would say this, that no parable, including this one, is complete theology. There's always something not being said in every parable, and so you need the whole scripture alongside every parable to understand the fullness of what God is doing. But the Good Samaritan is connected to what is called the greatest commandment of Jesus. 
So before you think, because some of you, if you've been in church, you're like, oh, the Good Samaritan. Like of all the most cliche parables for Tim to preach on after he's been gone for five weeks, way to go, Tim. Like if that's what you're thinking, remember you just prayed, Jesus, I'm listening. I'm listening to whatever you have for me today. He gave you ears. Let's use them. Amen. Amen. Look, at your, look at your neighbor and say, he gave you ears. Amen. All right. Luke chapter 10, starting verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Everyone say test. Yes. Who in here enjoys a good test? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like one person. I got a Scantron for you, Roger. It's going to be at the end of this message. We'll see how you do. How many of you, how many of you know you hate it when someone asks you a question and it's really just a test to see if you're an idiot or not? Oh, my gosh, right? Literally, last week, no joke, we met a couple while we were on a trip. And as we were talking, they found out that we were in ministry and that I was a pastor. And we were surprised that at that moment they didn't drop everything and run, which happens often when you travel and you tell someone you're a pastor, like, hey, I'm, I'm taking a break from that, and they run. But, but nonetheless, they actually asked us, oh, they started talking to us about our church, a lot of good questions. And the questions started getting more and more specific. To the point that they finally started asking about how we do communion. They were like, so how, who does communion? How do you do it? What do you use? And I just kind of look at them strange like, this is kind of deep for like two minutes in. You know what I mean? <laughs> and they are like, oh, this is a test. This is a test. And I go, oh, really? And I was like, I get it. Like you're trying to figure out if I am a true man of the cloth or if I'm just some joker pastor that uses Kool-Aid and saltines for communion, right? Ain't nothing wrong with that, by the way. But um, I don't know if we passed the test, but it's always a bit strange when a conversation turns into a test. Y'all know what I'm talking about? But that's exactly what the expert in the law did with Jesus. He's not there to learn from Jesus. He's there to trap Jesus. He's there to test Jesus. How many of you have ever experienced that? You're just having a conversation with someone, and then all of a sudden, because you're the Christian, they're, they're trying to trap you. Anybody ever experienced that? You're like, whoa, 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 that just happened. I, I'm just, you know, I don't know the answer to that question. That doesn't mean that Jesus isn't real. So Jesus isn't phased, though, in this moment. And this is, what, this is what happens. So the guy says, teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. The ex, so the expert in this moment, he quotes one of the most sacred texts in all of Israel. It was from Deuteronomy, uh, the sixth chapter, fourth verse. It goes like this. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is, this is not just one of the most sacred texts. It becomes a prayer. And I've talked about this many times. It becomes known as the Shema. Everyone say Shema. Shema was the thing that the, was the first prayer that every Jewish child learned and memorized. And they prayed every day. And so Jesus actually uses this moment. And he says, listen, it's the Shema that is most important. And by the way, the word Shema actually means hear, which is the first part of that verse, right? Hear, O Israel. Whoever has ears, let them here, right? Love God, love your neighbor becomes the anthem of what it means to follow Jesus. It's not just quoted once, twice, but eight times in the New Testament. 
And it becomes known as what is we commonly call today the great commandment of Jesus, to love God, to love your neighbor. But here's the tension with this particular moment. We don't actually live or treat this like it's the greatest commandment. Specifically, I believe the second part of this command, to love your neighbor, that may be the most dismissed command in all the Bible. I'm not saying that we never do it. I'm not saying we don't value it. I'm just saying we're not very good at it. And by this command, because it implies something, doesn't it? It implies in order to love God with all your heart and to authentically do this, you have to love your neighbor. So it's not enough to say you love God but then hold contempt for people in your heart. Can't do it. You can't walk through life believing you know that you love God while holding judgment or hatred or bigotry or, or even some sort of lack of compassion for others. These things are incompatible. Yet how many Christians, how many people that say they love God live this kind of life? Right? You know, I've lived in the city. I mean, Christy, our family, we moved here 10 years ago, not far from where we're standing right now. And, and over those years, I've learned so many things about this command. And one of the things that I've become acutely aware of is how many people live in isolation and loneliness. So many people. I see it all around us. I'm sure you do too. I'm sure some of you even feel this, experience it. Because I think it's easy for some of us to forget how many people live isolated and alone. Absent of any form of community or friendship or neighbors. I look around and there really is endless loneliness. And this is a strange reality when it comes to cities. Because the more people there are, often the less connected we become. And in our digital age, it's only making it worse, right? Because we are replacing relationships of proximity with relationships digitally that have zero proximity, often miles apart, and obviously no real authentic depth because they lack emotion. Neighborhoods are full of people but absent of love. That's just the truth about where many of us live. So when we started this church, like this command, love your neighbor, was deep, not only in Christianity's heart, but a lot of those early adopters. We were like, what if, what if we could be a community of people who love our neighbors? And so we imagined and we dreamed and we did all sorts of things. We threw neighborhood parties and what does it mean to live this personally? And we, we had all sorts of love your neighbor events as a church. We still do that when we can. And 10 years in, I'm here to say this. It's really hard it's hard to love like that. I certainly have great stories, and many times I've preached messages on love your neighbor, and I try to tell the stories to elicit the imagination of what could be. We have wonderful moments loving our neighbors, and in our, as a church loving the street, we have so many stories, and we're never going to give up on that. I mean, we have the language, love your neighbor, love the city, love your city, and love the world. Those are, those are extensions of our vision, our bringing life initiatives, right? Like, we believe in this stuff. But instead of standing up here today and telling you about all the wins that we've had over the years, I stand up here and I want to acknowledge how hard it is. Because sometimes your neighbor is hard to love. Sometimes your neighbor does not love you back. In fact, sometimes your neighbor doesn't like you. 
Now, hopefully your next door neighbor doesn't hate you. <laughs> but I'm not just talking about literal neighbors, right? I'm talking about this call to love all people as yourself. I want you to consider for a moment the most difficult person to love in your life. <laughs> Maybe it's the rude person. Does anybody get, anybody get tired of rude people? Right? Maybe it's the selfish person. Anybody get tired of selfish people? Because none of us are selfish. <laughs> or, the, or, the, or the needy person. You ever had that leech in your life? They suck the life out of you. Mm. Or the lazy person. Right? Or the person who has wronged you or insulted you or hurt you or is way different than you. Those, you ever had a difficult person to love in your life? You ever had many difficult people to love in your life? You see, the first part of that commandment is to say that you must love God, and, and we all sort of get that, and we go, oh, yeah, that, that's something I can do. But the second part, to love your neighbor, most of us struggle because we really have a difficult time understanding who our neighbor even is. We like to imagine our neighbors much nicer than most of the people that are difficult to love. We like to think of good neighbors. We like to think of that neighbor that looks a lot like us that walks down the street and we bond over their beautiful golden doodle. We don't have a relationship except through the dog. Nobody does that except everybody in my neighborhood. Right? The testing expert had this whole question about who's the neighbor. Who's my neighbor? So in verse 29, he says he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He is asking, okay, Jesus, I get it. If the law says that I'm supposed to love my neighbor, at least tell me this. Who is my neighbor? In other words, he is asking, who am I obligated to love? Now, there were actually debates, believe it or not, about this in ancient Israel trying to define who a neighbor is. Some rabbis would say, oh, it's any devout Israelite, any devout Jew, someone that is, loves the Torah, someone that goes to synagogue every week, that's your neighbor. you got to love them. Some others would say, oh, it's a bit wider than that. It probably includes more people, even those who don't go to synagogue every week, you know, pretty much a generally just you know, good people, their neighbors. And then some people are like, I think it's wider than that. It's anybody in Israel, even those who aren't religious at all, those who never show. I mean, so it's a very religious you know, culture, and so it was all kind of defined by, like, how much do these people uh, love God, and that's who my neighbor is. But no expert, no rabbi would ever say that a neighbor would include anyone that is not a Jew. It wouldn't have ever happened. And so when, when the guy asks him this, he's trying to get him to define which Jews do I need to love. <laughs> and Jesus is about to blow their mind. Right? He says, okay, I want you to think of it this way. When someone says that you should do something, right, there are two ways that you can define should. There are two kinds of should, right? There is the kind of should that is an obligation, and there's the kind of should that's an opportunity. For example, if someone says to you, you should pay your taxes, that's an obligation, right? That's like, yeah, you got to do that sort of thing. If someone says you should drive the speed limit, that's an obligation, friends. It's not a suggestion. Ride or die, baby. That one needs to die. Fast and furious. Okay. Um. But what if I told you a different should? What if I said, you know what? You 
should go eat at the Golden Corral before they all close and go out of business. Go out of business. That is an opportunity, friends. <laughs> it's been a minute. How many of you guys want to join me for some GC fresh baked rolls? Golden Corral rolls. Come on. That's an opportunity. Or I could say you should eat local or quit Netflix or you should go hiking or you should read a book. These are not obligations. They are opportunities that you can engage in, right? You could consider doing. But this guy talking to Jesus, when he says, well, who should I love as my neighbor? He is actually putting this completely square in the footprint of this is not an opportunity. What is my obligation? Who am I obligated to love? And for Jesus, I think we know this, but love is never an obligation in God's kingdom. It's our greatest opportunity. It's why we live. It's what makes us alive. The more we love, the more we live. That's the way it works in God's kingdom. Amen? So this question, who is my neighbor, sends Jesus off. He doesn't even answer it. He's like, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus goes into parable mode. Can you imagine? Like, hey, who's my neighbor? You know, there are two men going down the road. <laughs> so let's pick it up. Verse 30. A man was going down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. So it's a walk. It's a walk from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. How many know that's a bad day? I don't want to be attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. So this man, we don't know anything about him. Jesus doesn't give any details about him. We just know that he was beaten, and he was stripped naked, and he is laying in a ditch, half dead. Right? Like, that's what's going on. He is dying, and we read that a priest and a Levite walk by. I'm sure most of you can figure out what it means by a priest, a religious leader, a Levite, in case you don't know. They are basically assistants to the priest at the temple. All right? And so both of these men that walk by on the other side of the road have a great understanding of the law. They understand the Bible, if you will, during this time. They understand the law about loving your neighbor. But... For whatever reason, they don't see this man and think, we need to go and engage this in any way. In fact, they avoid it, don't they? They leave, they go around this person. They don't live out the great commandment here. There could be a million reasons why they do this. We don't exactly know why they do this, but there could be a lot. They could have been busy. They could have been in a hurry. They could have been scared. How many of you guys would be scared of a naked guy in a ditch, half dead? Right? A lot of us, right? I'd be like, whoa. But you know what? I'd go help him. Just kidding. I mean, come on. That was funny. That was a funny joke. They could be, but here's the thing. Historical, historical records kind of show that Levites and priests that worked at the temple in Jerusalem, many of them lived in Jericho. And they would work in Jerusalem for a week. And then the next week they'd have off. So what would happen is there would be these priests and Levites walking from Jerusalem to Jericho and they're going home or they're going to work. Does that make sense? And these guys were paid often in food from the temple. And so they'd be going home, potentially carrying their groceries when they see this man. Now there are other laws. If you know much about Jewish Old Testament, there's some strange laws, specifically around touching dead bodies. You're not supposed to do it. If you touch a dead body... They don't know if he's dead. He might be dead. He's at least mostly dead, right? And, and so they're like, if I touch him, I become unclean. 
My food becomes unclean. My clothes become unclean. So maybe they're protecting their food for their family for the week. Maybe that's why they avoided them. But I don't know. I mean, it's a parable. We don't really know. <laughs> I thought that was funny too. Um, <clears throat> then in verse 33, that, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where a man was, where the man was. And he saw him and he had compassion on him. Everyone say compassion. This is like the punchline of the story, by the way. Many of you know that in Israel, for centuries, Samaritans were despised uh, with a racial hatred, bigotry by, from the Jews. They were, they were seen as half-breeds. Uh, they had a religious history as Jewish people, but they had broken off and kind of created their own religious ideology. They were different. They had different beliefs, and they had become the enemies of an everyday Jewish person. Man, this is a very divided culture. I don't know if we understand that in today's world. We don't understand division, but they had it back then. I just want you to kind of imagine a divided culture, right? And it was hard. They, say, they see it like this, and, and the only way they would see a Samaritan, like a good, the only good Samaritan is a dead Samaritan. That's how they'd see it, right? Martin Luther King Jr., he had a great line from one of his sermons about the, great, about the good Samaritan. He said this. It'll be on screen. It says, the priest and the Levite asked, if I stop to help him, what will happen to me? The Samaritan asked, if I don't stop and help him, what will happen to him? That's compassion, right? Compassion is seeing yourself through the eyes of the person in need, imagining what would happen if that were me. So, verse 34, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring, pouring oil and wine. I thought that was interesting. Next time you have wounds, little Cabernet, it's biblical. Then he put, <laughs> then he put the man on his, maybe some Merlot, I don't know. Um, then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn to take care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, that much money doesn't sound like a lot, two denarii, but that would have been enough uh, for room and board for about two weeks for his food, for his room. So can you imagine taking someone to the Fairfield Inn, right? Dropping them off, giving them some money for two weeks of stay and food. That's what's happening. That's how generous and compassionate this man was being. Jesus is painting a different sort of picture of love and hospitality. Verse 36, he asks this then. He's looking at this expert. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had compassion or mercy on him. Notice he couldn't even say Samaritan, right? That one. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So Jesus ends the parable with a question and a command. The question from Jesus is, who was the neighbor in the story? That is different than the question that the expert asked. He asked, who is my neighbor? It's actually a very different ordering of the question. We'll get back to that distinction in a moment. But the command from Jesus is, go and do likewise. I want you to go and be a neighbor, not as an obligation of what we should do, but as an opportunity of who we could be, right? An opportunity of who we should be. Now, I, just, I always want us to think con contextually, like you got to imagine the crowd listening. They knew the Shema, right? They knew the law. They knew that the Shema was said twice a day by a devout Jew, so this idea of loving your neighbor was not revolutionary to them. There is no disagreement around this command of love. 
Where the disagreement was was about the extent of that love, the application, how far does love your neighbor go? And that, my friends, is the question we all face today. How far does love your neighbor go? This parable is evidence of what is obvious in the scriptures. Jesus will not allow boundaries to be set so that people can feel like they have, they have completed their obligation to the love of God. Love does not have a boundary where we can say we have loved enough, nor does it permit us to choose who we will love. So when we go back to this question and how Jesus switched this question, perhaps the most helpful thing that we can learn from this parable is this disjunction between the lawyer's question and Jesus' answer, where he changes neighbor as object to neighbor as subject. Jesus' answer to the lawyer's question negates the expert's question. Meaning, the question, who is my neighbor, by the way Jesus defined it, should never be asked. Franz Leinhardt, who I do not expect you to know who that guy is, 20th century writer, theologian, he said a brilliantly simple summary of what Jesus did here. He said, he said this, you can throw that on the screen. He said, one cannot define one's neighbors. One can only be a neighbor. We cannot say in advance who the neighbor is. Rather, nearness and need define neighbor. Who am I in proximity to and who has need? It's not about who's my neighbor. It's about the fact that I'm a neighbor. This is interesting because what this parable is actually addressing is our identity. This is not a cause and effect. This is not a prescriptive, hey, go and do likewise. And it seems so simple like, oh, Jesus is coaching us. No, he's actually speaking to a deeper issue. Who are you? Does love of God and love of neighbor actually define one's being? If so, such an identity excludes the possibility that you can even consider who or who not is defined as neighbor in your life. You may be thinking, well, aren't boundaries important? Shouldn't we have boundaries? Yes, but boundaries don't define our identity, even though in our culture we think they do. Our self-protective society loves to set boundaries in order to protect our time, space, and our conveniences. And anytime someone threatens those boundaries, they are threatening our identity. But that is not the way Jesus sets it up. Healthy boundaries are set by wisdom through the lens of love, not by the protection of self. That is good. Listen, the parable, like most of Scripture, is concerned with your identity. Essentially, when people ask Jesus, what do I do? He returned, said, what kind of person are you? Because when you know that, then you know what to do. Are you all with me? This is transformational. So why do I teach this today? Why do I cover a parable that is so common and well-traveled ground, thing that we've heard? What is the truth that's coming from it? Well, the truth for many of us is we are not living from identity. We are living from obligation. What we do versus what kind of person are you should define the way you operate in this world and how you combat a divisive culture, how you combat a question of what do I do in this situation, 
you do what a neighbor does. I'm sure in Jesus' day, no one would have blamed the priest or the Levite for what they did. There was no obligation for them to help the half-dead guy. They had religious reasons, perhaps. Maybe they were carrying their food. Maybe they were in a hurry. There's all sorts of excuses. How many of you know that all of us have plenty of excuses of why we do what we do and don't do what we don't do when we decide to not extend love to neighbor? They didn't feel obligated. Don't you, do you know we have, a, we have a similar law in our nation? Uh, we, have, we have laws that protect people from being required to help someone. It's an interesting thing, meaning if you watch someone drown, the law will protect you because you don't have to help them if you feel scared or unable to help them. I mean, in some ways, in a legal understanding, that makes sense. But in a moral sense, there's, it's debatable, isn't it? In our society, it's obvious that we do not blame others for not loving their neighbors. In fact, we elevate it. We justify it. What did the guy, what did it say? That he looked to justify himself by asking the question, well, who is my neighbor? Because surely they aren't. There are limits and boundaries that we all embrace, unspoken code of conduct that we all embrace and see as right that falls miserably short of the great command of Jesus. This is why I say it's maybe the most dismissed command in the Bible. We get it, we understand it, but we also live under the pretense that it is okay to take care of yourself first. You do you, it's their problem. So what does that mean? We just become like, you know, bleeding hearts for every situation in the world. No, I said it a minute ago, but I don't know if you caught it because it was in the midst of talking about identity. Healthy boundaries are created by wisdom through the lens of love. I'm not telling you you have to go do anything today or the things that you should do. I'm just simply pointing us to Jesus when he said basically in so many words, what kind of person are you? What kind of person are you? Are you the person that walks by or are you the person that stops? Are you the neighbor to your enemy? Are you the neighbor to the hurting and to the rejected? Are you the neighbor to, to, to the person that no one else wants to be a neighbor to you? Are you a neighbor when you don't have to be? See here, what, what God has been impressing on my heart through just sitting in this passage, this familiar story where I was like, God, I've preached this before. I don't know why I feel like I'm supposed to do it again. There's a couple things. One is that, listen, it feels so Christian to tell other Christians to say, hey, go love your neighbors. That's a message, sure, cool. But there's also like, oh, no, no, no. I want people that even, they are in no position to, because their life is in such need right now that they don't have the energy for this. I want you to hear the heart of God today is one of compassion for you. That he's sending people to you. Because we may be the priest of the Levite, we may be the Samaritan, or we may be the guy in the ditch. And I just want you to know, like, it is all predicated by love. 
And so this passage has been impressing on me that this is not about what I go and do today or tomorrow. It's about how I see the world every day. Do I see the world through the lens of love? Do I see every person as worthy of my love? You know, we see people through so many lenses, and I, and I think you guys get this. Is a lot of us, we look at people through comparison, through judgment, through, through, through some sort of prejudice. Through some, I mean, we look at people through all sorts of lenses before and besides the lens of love. What if, we, what if that was the first lens? How would it change our view of the world? Versus going, oh, yeah, they're them. That's, that, that's those people. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't expect anything different. Maybe not of them, but of you, you should. How many know that when we can look through the lens of love, we tap into a way of life that Jesus was, he was trying to build something, wasn't he? He was trying to build a kingdom of of Christ followers that understood the world differently than everybody else. I read a book recently by a guy named Andy Crouch. It's called The Life We're Looking For. And he shares about a personal experience that he has when he's in an airport and he's walking through the airport. Maybe you've had this experience and you're like, he had a long labor, so he's walking for like hours, right? And, and there, was a, there was a scripture put in his heart out of Genesis where it says uh, that God created man in his own image, male and female, he created him. And, and so when he's thinking about this passage, he's walking by all these different people and the, and the, and the phrase image bearer comes up. So he just walks by and he, he sees a person and every person he'd see, he would say image bearer. So he'd walk by them, image, image bearer, image bearer, image bearer. He did this thousands of times, like image bearer, image bearer. And he said it was just revolutionizing the way he saw everybody around him. And, and I was thinking about how powerful that practice was. And as I'm writing this message, I'm thinking, oh, this is the same thing. Like, I just need to be able to, to look around and I'm just like, oh, neighbor. Like, so I get out of church, I walk down the street and I walk by a person that's like neighbor, right? I go to Summer Moon, get me some coffee, right? Barista, neighbor. Right? Like the guy holding the sign on the, on, on the, on the street, like neighbor, right? The, the parent of the kid on the other team, neighbor. The people who go to other churches, for whatever reason, neighbors. The people who don't go to church, neighbors. People who make you angry, neighbors. I was at the library this week, public library. It's a lot of fun. Spent, I spent some time there this week. You do weird things on sabbaticals? No, I'm just kidding. Public library is amazing. And I, I was sitting there and I was looking around and all the different people. I'm like, neighbor, 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 neighbor. And ironically, my next door neighbors were in the library. And I was like, neighbors. No joke. God gives you little gifts for messages like that. When you are the neighbor, you know what to do and who you are. Jesus didn't tell us to love God and love others as an obligation, but rather as an opportunity to tap into a way of life. And the cause in this church to love our neighbor runs deep and we encourage you to be full of spiritual imagination. And a lot of you haven't been with our church for for years and years and years, but if you were gonna summarize the 10 years of our church, this is one of the anthems of our church. We've talked about loving your neighbor from the beginning days and we've encouraged you to really tap into it. And one of the best ways we've always said to start this is start with your literal neighbors, like learn your neighbor's names. Most of us, our neighbors, we might know one or two and the rest are just, hey man, and what's up girl? That's their names when you see them, right? Like, oh, hey, man. Well, what if you learn their names? So we've always said, hey, learn your neighbor's names. Like, what if you learn six, seven, eight, nine neighbor's names and you were the person walking through and, and every time you see them, you greet them by name and the way you do that is you write their names down, you remember them, you greet them by name 
and you ask them about their life and potentially you start becoming friends. Maybe someday you get to break bread with them. But this is one of the most practical ways to start learning what it means to love your neighbor, that you are no longer gonna stand for an isolated kind of lifestyle, not only on your own, but you're gonna do whatever you can to help others not feel that isolation and loneliness that's happening in cities. And you're gonna be a person that says, I understand that my neighborhood is full of people, but often absent of love and I'm gonna do something about it. I understand I live in a city that is full of need and hurt and it needs people of love and I'm gonna do something about it. I understand that I live in a nation full of division and, and, and a lack of peace and confusion and I'm gonna do something about it because I can be a person that says, you know what? I know who I am. My identity begins with love. My lens that I look at the world through is love. This is what Jesus was doing. Does that mean he doesn't have truth? We all know that, but that's a, that love and truth go together. But Jesus was always showing people, like, listen, the perspective here. It begins right here with the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor. He gave us a simple command with the potential to revolutionize the world. And as believers, we have to ask ourselves, am I living from obligation or from the opportunity to go and be who I should be? So here's what I want to do to close. I want to, I want to give you in a moment to say a prayer for a neighbor. So if you want to do that, I invite you to do it. It's a simple practice. If we're going to love them, we've got to pray for them. <laughs> And maybe you've never prayed for a neighbor and this is your first chance to do it. And so remember the whole prayer today is, Jesus, I'm listening. So right now I'm just gonna invite you to say, Jesus, I'm listening. Who is someone I need to pray for? So real quick, bow your heads. I'm just gonna lead you in this and it'll help, I'll help you get there. Bow your heads. And again, it's a really simple thought today. How do I, how do I begin this? Like, I'm just gonna say a prayer for someone. Maybe it's someone, it doesn't have to be, it can be a literal neighbor, it doesn't have to be. It could be someone you work with, it could be a friend, it could be a person you know that's in need. Maybe they're in the ditch. And right now you're just going to say a prayer with whatever words you come up with for that person. So right now say, Jesus, who is it? I, I'm just believing he's going to give all sorts of names right now and faces right now. Jesus, who is it? Once you have that person, take a minute and pray for them. Lift them up. Father, for the hundreds of names that are being prayed for right now, we just pray your spirit on them, pray your power on them, pray your love on them. God, you can do more than we can ever do. We know prayers are just hopes and dreams for uh, that we have in our heart for the sake of you to do what only you can do. So Lord, we pray in Jesus' name over our neighbors, over our friends. And maybe today I wanna invite anyone Maybe today you are here and, and, and you need to respond. In a moment, we're gonna sing. While we sing, this altar will be here. Our prayer team will be here. And here's what I would just say. Don't, don't step past what God has for you today. If God wants you to come and receive prayer, maybe you're the person who, 
who's been lonely. Maybe you're the person who's been hurting or maybe you're the person who's, who's, who needs help right now. We began with that prayer, we're ending with it. And if you need prayer today, our prayer team, that's why we're here. What better place to just say, Lord, we trust you and we ask you to help right now. So if today you need prayer, we invite you to come for anything and everything. Lord, we love you. We give you this time of worship and prayer and response. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing, as we worship for a little bit longer? Again, our prayer team is here. Please come. Please come. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. If there's anything we can pray with you about or if you have questions about God, we'd love to talk with you please visit our contact page at okccommunitychurch.com.